Welcome back to Plenary Session Podcast. I believe this is actually Season 5, Episode 45. Wow, it's been a long time, hasn't it? I think I started this in 2018, in the fall, and it's been going all these years. Steadfast, gaining popularity. And we thank you here at Plenary Session Podcast because we are the most popular podcast among oncologists, which is a very tiny market, a very tiny market. But in that market, we're number one within that market. It's a bit like when people say multiple myeloma is the most common cancer of plasma cells. It's the most common plasma cell cancer. I mean, there are lots of cancers that are much more common, but if it's a cancer of a plasma cell, there's nothing more common than this. And so that's sort of what it's like. Well, welcome. Today, got a lot in store for you. This is going to be a long episode because I'm going to put together things that I've done. So one, hot off the press, just recorded, just this minute, Karma 3, Karma 3, Idacel versus standard therapy, stand, whatever the hell that is, investigator's choice, the good stuff, well, minus the actual good stuff, which is a New England Journal of Medicine publication that is the talk of the town, and this is about CAR-T. But unlike the original CAR-T, this one, doesn't cure anybody. It doesn't cure anybody. It's equally expensive, of course, but it doesn't actually cure anybody. So it is much lower value proposition. And of course, this study is going to come in and we're going to be able to assess it in depth, including some of the key phrases written by the medical, I mean, the authors, obviously, obviously the authors would have written that. Next, I'm going to put a complete podcast that we did for the Sensible Medicine podcast. And by the way, I'm looking at my phone as we speak and I see I see it on my phone. It's called Sensible Medicine. It's its own podcast, and it's got all of us, and we have an episode which we put out, which is on fourth-year fellowships, expertise in long COVID, um, and I'm, it's me, Adam Sifu, and Marty McCary, and we talk about it. I'm going to put the audio track for that on this. I'm not going to do that forever. I'm doing that so that you go and sign up for Sensible Medicine podcast. I want you to sign up for it, too. But this is going to be a sneak preview. You'll get a taste of what you like, or what I hope you like. Then lastly, I think I might put one of my recent YouTube videos, the audio track about COVID. Why? I know many of you. It's kind of a, kind of a split audience. Some of you never want to hear about it again. <laughs> I, I get it. I get it. And the moment that the hospital finally frees us from this horrific mask requirement, then I will maybe... Not talk about it as much, because that'll be the, sort of the last way in which it infringes. Um, but I thought this was pretty interesting because it was a letter to the editor, I think, in the New England Journal of Medicine, and I go through and sort of deconstruct the arguments, and so I think it has some broader educational value, so I'm going to put it here. Now, what should you do if you like plenary session, if you like these three parts? One, you can let us know what you actually like about plenary session. You, you should tweet at us at plenary session podcast. Um, plenary underscore session, I think, is the Twitter handle. Let us know what you like about the show and what you think we should be doing. I'm thinking about bringing back questions from a medical student or resident, that court, that kind of segment. I'm thinking of bringing back, um, you know, some, some things like that. Nobody ever liked when I did the, the tumor board review questions. That was a thing I tried. I actually kind of liked it, but nobody liked it. Um, and let me know what you think about my, my randomized control trial extemporaneous talks. I've got some more. We can continue with that. But the thing you really got to do is you got to go to developdrugs.substack.com and sign up there. 
We've already had some things there that are not on the plenary session feed. Inma Hernandez and her colleague have published a new paper where they go through Medicare rules, which is now poised to negotiate drug products. And they actually tell you what drugs they think will be negotiated based on the cost of the drug as well as when patent terms expire. And that is covered in developdrugs.substack.com. We've got Logan Powell, who's explaining the paper we wrote about dostarlamab and this new, is it a parachute study, which is a really clever study design, I think, I'm biased, of course, that allows you to know if something's a parachute, but if it's not, it'll automatically trigger randomization. We've got Timothy Olivier, who's written about Sotorasib and Codebreak, takes that a little bit further than what we've talked about. So, I mean, if you really like this podcast, you're going to like developdrugs.substack.com. When the conferences come, you're going to get things you've never gotten anywhere. And if you think you're getting this content elsewhere, then I encourage you to tell me where that is because I want to listen to. I really want to listen. I'm really interested in sort of the very technical ins and outs of drug development. I haven't found a blog or substack that really does that the way I want to do it. So I like if you want something done right in this world, you got to do it your damn self. And that's why we're doing it. Sensible medicine is going to be a general medical interest show. Vinay Prasad's Observations and Thoughts substack, that's going to be sort of literally what I'm thinking in the heat of the moment as quickly as I think it. I'm going to put it out there, and that's what I use it for. DevelopDrugs.substack.com is going to be the plenary session ethos. It's going to be this kind of stuff. So with that prelude, we are going to talk about IDACEL, chimeric antigen receptor T-cell therapy, and the fact that by specific antibodies are going to subvert it. I mean, I think that's going to be one of the themes, but also the, the quality of karma three and also the meaning of karma, which I think people forget. Karma. Is that, no, that's not how we pronounce it in India, but that's okay. I'll allow it. Um, so on that positive note, karma three, then sensible medicine, roundtable discussion, then the YouTube videos deconstructing arguments made by the FDA commissioner and Peter Marks. I think that's the order. All right. Let us know what you think. Leave a message. Leave uh, tweet at us. That's the easiest way. Welcome back to Plenary Session. That's your favorite oncology podcast. It's got to be your favorite because we're the most popular one globally. Today I'm talking about Karma 3. This is Idacel or Standard Regimens in Relapse and Refractory Multiple Myeloma. This was the talk of the town just a couple weeks ago. People are still talking about it, to be honest. The study has got some problems with it. It's got some problems with it. It's got a lot of problems, and I'm gonna walk you through some of the biggest problems I see, but also some of the deeper philosophical problems. It is fitting that this is called karma, which uh, is the sum of one's actions in this life, which determines your fate in a future life, because I think the myeloma field doesn't realize that they have bad karma. I mean, they're promoting products relentlessly with very little understanding of when and how to give these products to maximize patient outcomes, but a lot of understanding about how to give these products to maximize profit outcomes. That seems to be what they care about. Let's take a look at IDACEL or standard regimens and relapse refractory myeloma. First, we thank the patients and their families for making this trial possible. The clinical trial teams, and of course, Simon, whatever your name is, for assistance in preparing an earlier version. Of course, it's a medical writer. God forbid you write your own New England Journal of Medicine article. God forbid you write it. You've got to have somebody prepare it for you. I think this is terrible. 
if somebody is helping you write the paper, it shouldn't be on your CV, you shouldn't get promoted for it. This is something that needs to be fixed. And if you think it's acceptable, people always make the excuse, well, that's no different than the status. If you think it's acceptable, then why not let the students do it in high school or college or even grade school, they can get their medical writer. Well, it turns out that you won't like that so much because writing is the expression of thought. If the PI cannot write their own manuscript, they're not qualified to be the PI. They need to go back to basic school and learn how to be a writer, how to formulate your thoughts and put pen to paper. So I disagree with this. This is the the takeaway figure. Look at that hazard ratio, 0.49. Such a good hazard ratio, people. What a good hazard ratio. Of course, a unitless, dimensionless, constructless value that has no meaning for patients or doctors. It's what people like to talk about. I don't like to look at hazard ratios. But even then, looking at the PFS, it's a pretty big median PFS, isn't it? Maybe it's about eight, nine months. Median PFS on standard regimens, it's a roller coaster ride. I mean, that PFS curve is precipitously falling. Whereas with Idacel, it's 13 months. The key takeaway here is look at the tail of the Idacel curve. How many people are cured with Idacel and cellular therapy and myeloma? And that's right, it's 0% because there is no such thing as cure in myeloma. I know some people like to use that word but they're using it incorrectly and they're creating a false promise. In fact, to some degree, it is a false advertisement because the more they use the word, the more they get the referrals from the wealthy patients who seek a cure. After all, who wouldn't want a cure if it exists? I would want a cure if it exists. But they use that word, they don't have evidence for that word, and it's really sort of predatory. I mean, it is a predatory practice to misuse the word cure. This is not curing anybody. Every single person who gets a cellular therapy is gonna relapse. That means the price shouldn't be $400,000. You know, it should be something much lower because it is not a durable treatment. It's different than the B-cell lymphomas, tisogenic leucal. It's different than pediatric ALL. This is not curative. But there's something about that standard curve that I don't like. You know, it's really abrupt. I mean, hmm. It's also two to one randomization. We're gonna talk about that. Um, but this is the takeaway. When this study was launched, where was Idacel already FDA approved? It was FDA approved for people with four prior lines of therapy. This enrolls people who are triple class exposed to two to four prior lines of therapy. It's a little bit before the FDA approval. Once we have it approved, what's the question that the doctor and patient wants to know? Once you have it approved and once you believe in it, that it actually has a role to play, which I think the majority of people myeloma believed it had a role to play. We'll talk more at the end about that. But they believe it has a role to play. I mean, people think it generates responses. It's a useful product. It's already approved after four. What you want in the next study is a trial that compares giving it earlier to giving it after four. I mean, both arms should get it. The question is, where's the right place to put it in sequence? For that, PFS doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? If you want to know the best place to sequence a therapy, you don't really care what progression-free survival is on that therapy because it might be better now. But if I give the standard regimen arm Idacel later, what's the combo PFS standard plus Idacel or Idacel plus standard? Is it the same? And if it's the same, then isn't it a wash? Can't I just give it an easier order? And what about OS? Does giving it earlier actually improve OS? There's one thing that giving it earlier will do. It's improve the bank account of the sponsor because more people are going to get it. The sooner you give it, the more people are going to get it, the more money they're going to make. But that's not even philosophically the right question. We're already giving this four prior lines of therapy. 
and we want to know about moving it up. Actually, it was even a little bit dirtier than that, wasn't it? Because it was very hard to get. They were running this study, unnecessarily large, as we'll point out, because it got two to one randomization. They're running lots of studies. They're studying this all over the place. There are even some people so crazy, they want to give a car to smoldering. Meanwhile, people with relapse, refractory, four-line myeloma, they're dying without access to CAR-T because the wait lists were so long. So they were taking all their manufacturing capacity and trying to move it up front. Meanwhile, they were neglecting the patients who were dying while the trial was running. I think that's pretty bad. Now, of course, the world is different because we got teclistimab. And teclistimab has the advantage that you don't have to wait for somebody to make it. And so it's going to eat up all of this market share. I'm pretty sure all the bites are going to eat up the market share. Why do I want a CAR-T that's non-curative when I can have a bite that's also non-curative, but at least I don't got to wait for you to make it and put me on some big wait list while you run your trials in MGUS and smoldering? Well, not MGUS, thank God, but, you know, it's a bit of an exaggeration, but not far from the truth. They really are relentlessly pursuing a market share that they can't deliver upon because they're not delivering upon the market share in the relapse refractory setting. Okay, so prior to this study, four and over, you could get it. This study is testing two to four versus standard care. Standard care, the best care you'd give somebody outside of the trial, right? Right? Not, not right, actually. Once again, we have a physician's choice, standard of care. That's not really an unfettered choice. You know, every once in a while I get invited to a restaurant and somebody's like, I'm going to take you to this restaurant. And they take you to a side room and they don't actually let you order from the menu. You order from a tiny menu where they've removed all the things you actually want to eat. And that's like this. The control arm had to be one of the following. Darabortezumab-D, Darabortezumab-Dex, Ixalendex. Oh, Ixalendex. That great regimen of Ixalendex. We'll come to that. KD, Elopom-D. But what about KPD? You're not allowed to give KPD? Why? KRD? Oh, well, KPD wasn't FDA approved at the time of the study, but KRD was. It was approved in 2015. Why am I not allowed to give KRD? Hmm, interesting. What about these regimens? Ixalendex has a failed overall survival in a randomized control trial in the relapse refractory setting, which I believe is tourmaline MM1. Lovely name. Ixa, it turns out, is one of the shittiest drugs in myeloma. Even when they ran a maintenance study against nothing, which was an unethical control arm, they still couldn't even get an OS benefit. And they couldn't even get an OS benefit in the relapse refractory setting. It is really a shitty proteasome inhibitor. It's oral, it's convenient, but it's shitty. It doesn't improve your survival. So why the hell would I even want it? It should be revoked. It's a useless product. Nobody likes it. No KPD, no KRD. There's no excuse that anyone can think of why they didn't allow KRD in this study. And also, they should have allowed whatever the doctor wanted to give, for Christ's sakes. What about cytoxin? What about Derakd, Isakd, CD38KD? You're not allowed to give a CD38KD? It's also a bizarre prohibition. And what did people actually get? Well, they got Derapomdex, 32%. They got Derivelkadex, 5%. They got Ixalendex, 16%. Poor people. They got KD, 23%. They got Elopomdex, 23%. Okay. Did the control arm regimen have something to do with your PFS? Oh, but before that, they have a very unusual criteria in the supplementary appendix. Parent, uh, patients, not parents, patients who received DARA in combination with POM or DEX as part of their last regimen, 
they got to get DVD, IRD, KD, or KPD. Wait a second, that means the only thing that they can't get is DPD. But they just got DPD. So you mean to tell me, you have to tell your investigators if their last regiment was DPD, don't give them DPD. Give them one of the other four. And if you got Daravelkade decks as your last regiment, you could get DPD, IRD, KD, or EPD, but not DVD. You mean to tell me, you have to tell these people not to give the exact same regimen they got before? You got to spell that out? What did you think they were going to do? I mean, it shouldn't have to be stated that you'd have to be a very, very delinquent and also unethical doctor to literally give somebody the regiment they have immediately progressed on. And the same is true for the Ixal Index. You can give the other ones, but don't give them Ixal Index. They have to be saying it because they think people would be doing it otherwise. It does speak to the fact that, you know, when you're running a trial, you maybe they worry that they'll want to please them so badly they will get to that level. I, I, would, I wouldn't think you'd have to spell it out. And to be honest, this could all be better as well because the control arm could just be, you can give him anything you wish, anything you wish, any regimen you would give otherwise. Just do that. And when they hit four prior lines, they get I to sell. And we're not going to measure PFS. We're going to measure an endpoint that's actually useful, like PFS2 or PFS4 or OS or something useful, you know, something downstream. We'll actually answer the relevant question of where do we sequence I to sell. But instead, they have this bizarre. They're banning KRD. They're banning KPD. They're banning some of the most potent triplets on, I would say, arguably, with a convenient that the more you punish the control arm with restrictions, they're going to do poorly. Let's talk about poorly. These are the median duration of treatment. If you got DVD, you had 86 days. My God. KD was 178 days. What would have happened if you had made it KRD and KPD options? What about Dara KD? What about Isa KD? What would have happened? Huh. It turns out that if you look at just the DPD and KD arm, course this is not randomized this is just the pre-specified investigator choice from the restricted menu the pfs is more like six months not the miserable four months that they report and if you were allowed to actually give a proper control arm i suspect it would be better than that what had they gotten before they'd gotten all of these drugs before oh wow so giving something that operates via a different mechanism of action is better than giving all of the same drugs you've already gotten before for PFS and not even OS. I mean, okay, that's what you're gonna prove to me? Wow, they've gotten all these things. 88% got an immunomodulatory agent, 73% got LAN, and 50% got POM. Interestingly, only about 40% got that K. Imagine there were more combos you could give with carfilzomib. Dara was 95% and as expected, isotuximab. Very little market share for y'all. Double class refractory, triple class refractory, penta refractory. I don't want to scoop a paper I'm working on, so I'm not going to talk too much about how they define these refractory statuses. This is interesting. 254 people were assigned to the IDASL group, 2 to 1 randomization, 249 underwent leukophoresis, but only 225 received IDASL. That's about 80, 88%. Turns out that not everyone gets this therapy because it's not off the shelf, and a lot of people die or progress before they can get the therapy. And that's pretty terrible. And I think that's going to be the thing that keeps this product from really, you know, really being a blockbuster class of products.
A total of 254 patients were randomly assigned to the ISL group and 132 to the standard regimen. So that means this is two to one randomization, so it's 12% suboptimal. You would probably be able to shave off 60 patients if you just did one-to-one -one randomization. Why didn't they do one-to-one -one randomization? Well, you would say that like, look, we really wanted to make this product available to people, but that doesn't really hold, does it? Because the product is available. It's FDA approved for four prior lines of therapy, but it's also not available because you're using all the slots for your study and not actually having slots available outside of the study, which is what happened during the years in which this fell in favor. So what you're saying is you took extra 60 slots. I mean, this is a research ethics question. It was not necessary for your power calculation and you'd have been better off actually using those slots for people who were progressing after four or five or six or seven prior lines of therapy who really needed the eye to cell because there was literally nothing else you could give him. The characteristics of the patients at baseline were generally balanced in the two groups, except for black race, 7% in eye to cell group and 14% in standard regiment. Excuse me? In this modern world? I don't know what you're doing here. It's a bit unusual. A bit unusual. And the control arm, no less. Hmm. I don't like it. I mean, probably randomness, let's just say. It's randomness. But it is an unfortunate bit of randomness, isn't it? This ain't the 1980s, okay? This is 2023. You gotta be careful about this. I don't like it. I don't like it one bit. Two patients had grade five cytokine release syndrome, one after decline in organ function, and one with concomitant grade five Canada-related sepsis. Hmm. Grade five adverse events. That, that's not good. Grade five is death. Your product kill people. Not, not good, not good. And all the more reason why PFS really isn't an appropriate benchmark for moving it up a line or two in therapy. Here's the kicker. Your PFS was four months on standard regimen, which is really poor. And you authors try to justify why that's acceptable. They say a recent real-world analysis showed that patients who had been exposed to five prior regimens within a median of no more than four years since diagnosis had a median PFS of just 3.7 months. In addition, locomotion study shows, and here's locomotion, there is a median OS of 12.6 months and a median PFS of 3.7 months. This is what they're citing. So like when you've had people progress a lot, four-month PFS is not out of the question. But if you have a four-month PFS, you're gonna get a 12-month OS. So in this trial, the control arm had a four-month PFS. So do they also have a 12-month OS? No, at the data cutoff of April 18th, 2022, with 18.6 months follow-up, only 28% of people had died in the trial, and it's not significant. They don't break it out by arm. These are patients whose median OS is gonna be in the 25 to 35-month ballpark. Just plot that curve out and extend the line. So the fact they're progressing in four months is very unusual, isn't it? And it isn't commensurate with the real world where a four-month PFS is a 12-month OS. This is a four-month PFS with a 26-month OS, isn't it? So your, your, your medical writer or whoever wrote that sentence 
is trying to sell me some bullshit because I know these patients are healthier than average and they're not comparable to that real world data set and I know your control arm was particularly shitty and you prevented investigators from giving all of the most active regimens including ones that were FDA approved and they did much worse than expected. In fact, I'm going to prove yet again that they're doing much worse than expected and you're going to try to justify that by saying, well, they don't do that good in the real world but in the real world, they don't live 20 plus months with 18.6 months follow-up. They'll be much more than 28 percent dead. In fact, they would have met the median because it should have been 12 months. You are playing games. I know you're playing games. I read these. I, uh, uh, this is ridiculous. We have to have some integrity in the field, okay? This can't just be the bullshit hour in the New England Journal of Medicine. If you don't have integrity, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Why are you... Why, who is the child who grew up to want to write authors with write papers with medical writers and consult for companies and forget about the patient forget about the question the question is you're using idacel in your clinic right now the question is should it be after four lines or two lines just think use your brain for two minutes should you be using pfs as the endpoint and the answer would be what sense would that make you want to know if giving it earlier versus giving it late let's use some endpoint downstream shouldn't we because it's very possible you'll achieve the same OS by reserving it for later. After all, it's a little bit more toxic. It's also possible it is better to give it up front. But how am I going to know the difference when you design a trial like this? Why is PFS the endpoint? You know, I mean, it doesn't make any sense. And who is the person who goes into the field to do these absolutely uninformative studies? More proof. More proof that they have a PFS way worse than what anyone expected. We calculate the plan sample size of 381. The trial would have 94% power to detect improvement in PFS from nine months to 14 months. They hypothesized a nine-month PFS on the control arm, which would be more commensurate with the OSs that they're seeing. But they got four. They are getting a very, very poor PFS. And the DARA VD is really, really poor, even though it is 5%. They're not giving the most active control arms, and that's why they're underperforming in the PFS. Okay, conclusions. Number one, the control arm was trash. Enough of this investigator choice. Give it an, make it, just give a fair choice, okay? Anything you want on the menu. Anything you want. Not these limited menus where you've removed all the most active agents. KD had some of the longest duration of treatment. And if you added a CD38 or a LEN or a POM, it would be even longer, wouldn't it? You underperformed your own power calc. FDA-approved treatments were prohibited, Kirti. The PFS was so bad, so bad. The overall survival was much better and discordant with the PFS. Ergo, these patients are not comparable to the registries. We've learned nothing about how to sequence the agent. You've done your study. You've deprived people who of slots. You've burnt an extra 60 patients you didn't need to. And, and we really don't know where to sequence it. Is it. Should I give it after two? Should I get it after three? Or should I, can I give it after four? Where do I sequence the A drug? We've learned nothing. It's really an uninformative study. I knew it had a PFS of something. I knew it had a PFS of nine months, now it's 13 months. But I don't know if it's best here or best later. And everyone who's doing this study believes it has a role somewhere in the journey. The company, the investigators, they failed the patients. And the medical writer was involved in the, the cover-up. Okay, now one last thought. I mean, in the regulatory system, I imagine, the way I would bring this product to market wouldn't be any of this foolishness. Number one, approving it based on an uncontrolled response rate and a DOR. That's also pretty stupid. So I would say the first study should be the company has to show an OS benefit. And it has to be 
it has to be CAR T versus a real investigator's choice. And I think you'd probably go in a penta refractory setting and you randomize people to Ida cell versus investigator choice. In those days, I mean, you could might have also been, well, let's put that aside. It would have been many of these regimens. It might have been cyclophosphamide too, which by the way has been prohibited here for no good reason. Um, I think they probably would have won. I mean, I honestly think they probably would have won in the pentarefractory setting and even an OS benefit, maybe. They would have eked it out. I think it would have been more sobering, pretty small, and they would have wanted to price the product a little bit lower. And then the subsequent study that they're running, I think they should be doing in the second line. Oh, by the way, my first study, people say, oh, you're gonna delay the product to market. Actually, one, it would result faster. I've proven that to you in a paper by Emerson Chen and colleagues. Two, what's the point of rushing it to market when you're when you're blowing all your manufacturing capacity on trials like this you're not going to be able to offer the service anyway so we don't really need to rush it do we but that said it would have been faster i would have done that study first then i would have done a study after three prior lines versus after five prior lines and the primary endpoint will be os and it would also result pretty briskly actually because three prior lines if they're really refractory um to three classes they don't do well per your real world registry then four, I would remove all of the inclusion criterion filters. This is a paper that we wrote in Nature Reviews Oncology about um, big, pragmatic, randomized trial with the ability to look for real-world benefits. I would remove all those things. And I really think that it probably wouldn't be moving up a line. It probably would be in that last ditch. It has toxicity. It has delay. So when you really pay those penalties up front versus getting it on the back end, I doubt you'll be able to eke out a benefit. And then while those studies were running, teclistimab and talquitimab are gonna blow you out of the water. So that's how I would envision the regulatory process to work. I think it's been detailed in four chapters of the solutions book of the malignant. I think that the way it's actually working is this study is actually really uninformative. I mean, I'm not sure anybody is gonna be able to say that because of this study, I know to give it blank because you don't know. You don't know if people live longer, live better by giving it second line, third line, fourth line, or fifth line as it was already FDA indicated. Um, I don't know what we're doing. I really don't know what we're doing in this field. I mean, you do not, do you not see there's only one entity that is benefiting from the current trials situation and that is the company. It's not the patients. It's not even the doctors. I mean, maybe some are benefiting with consulting payments and like the, the cheap thrill of seeing your name in print, but uh, the payments are just a tiny pittance of the actual revenues the companies are making. In fact, somebody calculated it for me, but they got a little bit scared. They want to publish the paper. Um, but the revenues are just like, you know, one-tenth of one percent of the revenue. that The payments the doctors are getting just one-tenth of one percent of the revenue. Um, so they're bought off cheap. All right. Terrible, I don't know, karma three, myeloma, bad karma. I mean, the real lesson is bad karma because it's bad karma to be in a field that is so exploitative of patients, so exploitative that they're not, they don't even ask the relevant question. We're already had it approved. We're trying to move it up. Is it better upfront versus giving it on the back end? It's, it has a better PFS than a restricted control arm that's omitted the best options. Bravo. The PFS underperformed even your own miserable power calculation and your little spin cycle of comparing it to the real world data is not fooling anybody who's actually intelligent. So it might be fooling a lot of people. Okay, on that positive note, we'll be back. Plenary session podcast, more to come. I think, um, oh, develop drugs. There's a new substack. It's called developdrugs.substack.com. 
If you're out there and you work in pharma, if you are out there and you work in academia, if you're out there and you're aspiring drug development person, you want to subscribe to developdrugs.substack.com. This is going to be the go-to place for drug development tips and pearls. If you like this video, if you like this explanation, if you like a clear, direct, concise, and yet also technically accurate and supported by empirical data approach to drug development, you're going to like that Substack. So go there, subscribe, put your name on that. And if you haven't already, leave a review on the Plenary Session Podcast iTunes store. Uh, read the book Malignant, so that's what I'm telling you is a little bit repetitive and not always out of the new. Um, and uh, we'll be back. There's something else. Oh, I want to talk about that neoadjuvant Pembro versus adjuvant Pembro melanoma study, phase two. We'll be back. So until next time. Welcome back to Sensible Medicine. The day is March 5th, 2023. I'm joined by Drs. Adam Sifu and Professor Marty McCary. Professors, it's good to see you. Great to see you, Benign. So here we are, here we are, back at last. We are having the rotating lineup. We're gonna be going through people in the next few weeks. I missed last week. Uh, I ate some bad- We uh, struggled without you last week. <laughs> I heard the little, the nod in the beginning. Yeah, I appreciated that, I appreciated that. <laughs> Today, we've got a big lineup for the listeners. The first thing we're going to talk about is extra fellowships. You know me, I love a few more years of training for low pay. The next, we're going to talk about expertise and what expertise really means, especially when there's no data. So we're going to talk about that. And then maybe we'll talk a little bit about some COVID-19 policy if, if there's time. I know that's the last thing on anyone's mind these days. So let me kick it off with this, with this introduction, and then I'll throw it to you, Adam. Um, so... You know, this is an issue that uh, you'd be surprised. It doesn't earn me too many friends. Uh, <laughs> you'd be surprised. People don't like this position. But to be a hemonc doctor, currently, you have to do three years of internal medicine. You got to do three years of hemonc. And that's so much. That's how much we've got so far. Four years of medical school, six years of graduate medical education, 10 years of training. There is a push among many, many programs to add extra years. We've got one-year fellowships in multiple myeloma one-year fellowships in bone marrow transplant, one-year fellowships in lymphoma, one-year fellowships in breast oncology, one-year fellowships in phase one. These are not ACGME accredited fellowships. And historically, as of like two years ago, they've not been necessary because you could easily finish the 10 years of training and go on to do any one of those things if you so choose. Of course, these are optional. Nobody has to do them. Um, but one of the arguments I make is that like everything optional, the more people do it, the less optional it becomes. And radiology, maybe 15, 20 years ago, was the end of it. You did radiology, you could read images. Now you've got to do MSK or, or chest or body and often two fellowships before you can really even get a job. And so I think we have fellowship bloat. And it's related to, I think, the issue of just how many years we take to train people and how many of those years are useful and how many are useless. And the final piece of the puzzle is I would have no problem with this extra year if they paid them what they pay an assistant professor. But of course, that's why they call it a fellowship. They really call it a fellowship because they're paying you maybe 100K less than what you make otherwise. All right. So obviously, I'm a critic. I think we should boycott or abolish these things. Um, but I'm curious what you all think. Okay. And I'm curious what a surgeon thinks because he's got to actually use his hands. So let's start it off with you, Adam. What are your thoughts on on medical training, can we shorten the years this extra year? Right, so I, I think the, the clear default argument that people use to uh, promote this is that 
you know, there's an, you know, unbelievable advances, right, in medical knowledge. There's more and more to know. Much of medicine has gotten more and more specialized. There are fewer generalists out there. Um, and so maybe it makes sense to have this extra time. Um, I think I'm in your camp on this. I don't think it's necessary. I think we waste a lot of time in medical education, both in you know UME, undergraduate medical education, medical school, and in GME, um, because there's always this tension between you know, what you do as a low paid worker bee and what you do as a student or trainee who's being educated. I always think we haven't done a good enough job with, with moving people along in their training saying, listen, you've managed, you know, 15 cases of heart failure as an internal medicine resident. You're done with that. You don't have to do it anymore. You know, you're good enough at that and you can move on. And I, I think that's the same thing in, in hematology oncology fellowships. And okay. I'll come back to you, Marty, your thoughts. I agree with you. Well, first of all, I think we have to recognize there's a crisis we have with physicians burning out or being disillusioned. And if you're in total denial of that crisis, sure, put them in residency and fellowship for 50 years and then have them practice <laughs> one year of excellent, high quality medicine. Um, but the reality is, I don't know if you saw this stat that came out, um, but something like 30 some percent of women leave medicine seven years out from residency. I mean, yes. it, how can you not address that, right? And the problem is not that they're not getting enough uh, classes on equity, right? The problem is that they feel disillusioned with the entire field. And if you think about the entire process, starting with college, a lot of it is a bit of a scam, right? I don't believe in education. I believe in learning, but this idea that you you know have to go to you know study geology and learn all the different names of the rocks as you know part of your liberal arts education a hundred percent of those rocks names you will forget two weeks after the exam <laughs> maybe you'll retain one the name of one rock it sounds absurd it sounds absurd. No, when you remodel your kitchen you got to learn them all again marty you got to learn the quartz you got to learn the granite <laughs> right right maybe that's why you need to know yeah. it but um we do the same thing in medicine. We're laughing. We do the same thing with the freaking urea cycle. Yes. I mean, why do you have to learn the every intermediate molecule of the Krebs cycle and memorize it and regurgitate it for exams at six different points in your medical training before you finish, right? They keep testing it over and over again. What are we doing? We're, we're taking these beautiful creative minds and we're forcing them to do this regurgitation and then they come out sometimes not learning how to take care of sick patients effectively. We scratch our heads why, and we say, throw more years at them in the in the slammer. And so in general surgery, <laughs> we have five to seven years yeah. of general surgery education. And then you do another one to two years to specialize in breast. Well, I mean, well, if you're going to specialize in breast, why are you taking out prostates as an assistant? in your general surgery residency and managing pancreatic abscesses in the middle of the night and having sleep deprivation and nearly getting into a car accident on your way home. Why are we doing that? And then we wonder how, why are a third of women leaving? And I don't know what the number is for men too, but the burnout and disillusionment rate is alarmingly high in part because we're treating our young so poorly. 
And all we have to do is recognize that these are beautiful creative minds. We can be more efficient. And it's not about our cheap labor. It's about um, getting them to be competent and facile in the field. That's an important point. You know, I just saw that a training program recently offered to pay for embryo and egg freezing of all trainees. And I was like, you could just shave a few years off. Okay. You don't need to be free <laughs> freezing your embryos. You can add another fucking four more years. All right. Just stop paying the freezing the embryos and let's maybe like graduate. Soon. Or have them memorize the Krebs cycle four times. Instead just one. Of <laughs> okay. So let's, let's go to the beginning. Okay. So one, I think maybe we'll see if we all agree. Um, pre-med is lovely. Actually of all the years of your life, it's probably the most fun, like being a college kid. But if you really knew you wanted to go to medicine, do you have to finish four years, maybe let people go after two or three? I mean, if they know their hearts in medicine, why not have a pathway to let them jump up sooner? Medical school, as Adam has eloquently said, the fourth year is the most expensive vacation year of your life. Uh, one year can be poof, gone instantly. And the first two years, to Marty's point, is you're memorizing a lot of the things that you've often memorized in high school biology or college biology. So that's another poof year I see gone. Residency, I think if you're gonna be a great internist, you know, three years is reasonable. If you're going to be a subspecialist, maybe make it two years and help them get to the subspecialty training. And then in subspecialty, I mean, even in Hemonc, 18 months is research. And what is that research? Like forcing somebody who doesn't want to do research to do some case reports. I mean, for a lot of people, that's what it is. And so maybe, you know, we can lose an extra year there. And so I think if anything, we should be talking about cutting the training by four or five years and not adding a year on the back end. Adam? Yeah, <laughs> you know I'm going to object to that, right? Okay. Um, so I agree that training could be and should be shorter, um, but I've seen this in curriculum reform in medical schools as well, that what, what happens is students say, and I think totally appropriately, you know, we want to be on the wards faster. Um, and so the reaction is, okay, we're going to shorten the preclinical um, curriculum. But instead of doing that intelligently, it just gets compressed, right? There's not taking out Krebs cycle part three and four. There's, okay, you're still going to have to memorize it four times, but you're going to have to do it in 18 months rather than right. two years. Okay. So if we do these things, it needs to be done very intelligently because I have certainly no data for this, um, but I see in residence that there are very few people who after finishing an internal medicine residency are like, okay, I'm ready to practice, right? People are worried. They're sort of like, I don't feel prepared at this point. And so there's often the default towards a fellowship because oh, I'll feel more comfortable with more training. And that's sort of on us because we've had three years and we haven't gotten those people to the, to the point that they're just like, itching to go into practice and start taking care of patients the next day. Um, and so I'm all for shortening things. And I, and I know you think this too, but it just has to be done in a really intelligent way where we, we make sure that people are prepared before they move on, you know, usually early to the next stage. Yeah, Can I, I ask so, a yes, question? Yeah. So Adam, what do they feel uncomfortable with? And the reason I'm asking is we all believe you have to be a master at what you do i think we're, we're asking where's the waste that we can cut is do they feel I, that they didn't get enough time on their dermatology rotation or they're you know they need more time in nephrology or they need more icu time or they need more time in clinic where they're dealing with unknowns right well i i think the issue is sort of going back to what Vinay said is that we're not thinking about 
what that individual needs to do or wants to do, right? And so the person who wants to do general internal medicine, right, should be spending a lot of extra time, you know, in clinic, figuring out how to work the system, figuring out how to work through unknowns, um, rather than spending all this time on the inpatient service. And so they're worried about going out to practice on their own because, you know, they haven't done that enough. Um, and on the other hand, that person who's going to start you know, a Hemonk, a Hemonk fellowship afterwards. Um, you know, why are they spending three months on the cardiology service? Um, and they could be doing, you know, a little bit more uh, sort of general Hemonk while they're internal medicine residents. So they've got a leg up when they start their fellowship. I mean, all you need to know is the heart's primary purpose is to deliver chemotherapy to the target tissues. I mean, it has no other <laughs> real purpose. Um, but, you know, I, so I think I think one of the good points is that, you know, if you know where you're going, there should be paths to cultivate your experience along the way. I think the second good point that Adam makes, and I think we really have to emphasize, is you have to cut things, and you have to cut things people don't need to know. And I know the people who teach the Krebs cycle for the umpteenth time, they don't want you to cut their, you know job and basically teaching that class, but it has to be cut. I mean, it has to be cut. And modern medicine always reinvents itself, should start with a destination and think backwards. And then to Marty's point and to Adam's point, I think um, it, I think it is definitely, there's a crisis, not a crisis, but an anxiety among young people in their first year or two years of practice. I always tell people, you don't even feel like an attending until year three. And it's not that you don't know the answer. Sometimes you know the answer, but you really miss that cushion of, being able to have the attending bounce off the idea and check all your sort of decision-making with the attending, you don't have that. Now, how will you solve that? I think maybe to Adam's point, he's always made this point eloquently, you know, internal medicine training is three years, it's a time. But what it should be is six, you know, diabetic ketoacidosis, seven pneumonias, 22 heart failure exacerbations, 10 mixed picture. I mean, there should be some checklist and it should be sort of an experiential thing. Like once you've hit your I've managed DKA or uh, uh, like uh, I've managed infected gangrenous foot for the 25th time, you know, like you're off the hook for infected foot, you know, osteomyelitis of the foot and you're going to look other things. And, and yeah. it we complain so much about the electronic medical record, right? This is a, uh, an Perfect area use. that we can make it work for us, right? Because we're tracking all of this stuff and you can say, look, you know, when you finish your admission H&P, you know, you're putting in, you're probably doing it already, you know, the three main points of this case that you're managing. And that goes into your, you know, your own little, I don't know what you'd call it, sort of portfolio of cases, you know, in Epic um, that then lets you know, okay, it's time to move on. It's time to move on. You know, these cases now go to the hospitalist when you're on call and you wait for something else to come in. And I got to say one more, you want to say something, Marty? Canada does that with surgical procedures and surgical training. You know, you, you hit certain milestones. Uh, there's a guy named Dr. Resnick who pioneered this. And it was really a new model of education. And that is that when you, you know, do 25 carotid endarterectomies and you can get signed off by your supervisor that they feel that you're pretty good at doing that procedure, then you move on to the next thing. But remember, residency and training is not really designed, even the fourth year of medical school, which is somewhat of a complete joke or a partial joke. <laughs> I don't know who the, the joke is on the student. Yeah, who's paying? Who's, who's financing this corrupt system? And then the hospitals get this GME allotment, which is basically a bonus payment from the government because you do teaching, right? That comes from the old days when they argued 
Well, this, the students and residents don't know what they're doing, so they're incredibly inefficient, and they're ordering all kinds of unnecessary tests. So pay us extra to cover all this waste, right, that they yeah. create. And now you, yeah. you, they actually make the hospital more efficient because they're incredibly cheap labor, so it's ironic. And you know that they make the hospital money because when Hahnemann went bankrupt and they sold their residency, it went to the highest bidder and they're bidding like $100 million. So you know that it's an asset. It's not a liability. <laughs> if a venture capital firm is going to give you $100 million for your residency program, it's making you money, duh. Okay, I got to say this. And you're going to put, you guys, I want you to push back on me because I'm going to be hard on. I mean, what am I to think when these people tell me the people running these extra fellowships did not they themselves do the fellowship. Okay, that's point number one. They didn't do it because they're running it. Two, they're paying the person who should be paid assistant professor salary, which by the way, it's not like the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. It's an academic medical center. It's not gonna be that great. They're paying them 50, 60, 70% what they would otherwise earn, often just a fraction of their own billings. Like it's, they're actually earning you money. And then three, they're doing tons of like free research labor for you which is why you like it. I mean, let's be honest, that's why you really like it. I mean, I would like it too. Somebody followed me all day and did a lot of my work and I get to pay him a little bit, you know, and I get to have him, my helper. Um, you know, and and so I guess I, I called it exploitative and I really do. And everyone's all mad at me, you know, you, oh, you, it's too harsh, exploitative. It is like when you take a smart person and you squander their time and you make it harder for them to like, participate in normal life, you're exploiting them. And let's just call it what it is. And, and if you don't think you're exploiting them, then just advocate to pay them the assistant professorship salary. It's only like 80, I don't know, difference of $80,000. That's the cost of like one of your drugs for one month. Like it's not even like just take one drug and that's it. That's it. That's your money or, or the spillover on a grant. Okay. So tell me that I'm being too harsh on him, Adam. Here. All right. Go, go ahead. ahead Adam. Go ahead. No, Mark, uh, you go. Here's the thing. I mean, I, you know, Vinay, you're always a pro at saying, okay, look, like, here's a good idea. Let me take it to the absolute extreme to get people like angry about it. Um, you do have to admit that like medicine is changing, right? Medicine is getting more complicated. Um, and well, let's talk so, about that. Yeah, so you on, can't just on. say, right? I mean, you can't just say that we go on with the same amount of training forever even though it actually, the, the job actually gets harder, right? Um, and so, you know, people, I don't think the idea behind this is that the people who are already on the boat are pulling up the ladder and saying, we're just going to exploit the poor people who are treading water right now. They're honestly thinking, boy, you know, the people who are getting into this job don't know enough now, and they're doing so much training on the job. Maybe we can do a better job of teaching them. But I agree that we need to pull back and we need to say, listen, we are saying that to train a hemonc doc, it is, you know, six years postgraduate period. Okay. And if we need to focus that more and specialize more, that's how we need to do it. And I think that's kind of the appropriate way forward. That's that's the expert way to put it. Marty, thoughts? I'm going to push back on well, this second. Yeah. Look, I, I, first of all, this is what I love about you, Vinay. You like to challenge deeply held assumptions in the field that we've inherited and nobody has questioned. And the reality is that this idea of fellowship training serves two purposes. One, it serves as a credential to ensure that you've got some standardized level of quality. But two, it serves as a way to create an elite club. And you are only allowed in that club if you go through our training program. So for example, when bariatric surgery started, um, you had really qualified people doing high volume bariatric surgery, but they didn't do a fellowship. 
And then they, you know, a group of them said, we need a, a fellowship program in bariatric surgery. Now they didn't grant, you know, they grandfather, I mean, they didn't grandfather people in because I guess they're, they've never been boarded, but they, it, it's probably good that they create some sort of advanced training. Here's the thing. Why do you need a certificate though? Most of your learning happens your first year or two of practice. And what I find makes, what makes a great doctor versus an average or mediocre or very scary doctor is their humility, their will, their ability to understand their limits and ask questions of somebody like Adam, who's a genius and been around forever, right? You want somebody who, who's not for, I don't mean, didn't mean no, to say. Yeah, call it the way it is. Look at that gray beard. I call it the I, way it is. <laughs> I didn't mean, I didn't mean to suggest he qualifies for Medicare because <laughs> next year. <laughs> I got 10 years. <laughs> 10 years. <laughs> Don't worry, they'll raise the age by the time you're there, Adam. Um, okay, Marty, that's well put. That's well put. Um, okay, so to, to Adam's point, yes, I think a more graceful way to say it is to say, look, you've got this many years. You want you can do whatever the hell you want with those years, okay? But if you want to train these people differently, you got to use your years wisely. Um, I think that's reasonable to say. The second thing I'd say is that you know, Hemonk is 18 months clinical and 18 months research. So if somebody in those 18 months says, I really want to do breast, it's incumbent on them to just go to the breast clinic in the other 18 months and just like, you know, plant yourself on a stool and spend some time there. And you're going to learn breast and you're going to learn myeloma. Um, but, you know, I think Adam raises a philosophical point. And this is what I, I don't, I don't know if I've actually come to the answer on it. So I'm just going to talk it out. Is medicine harder than it was? I will absolutely concede there are more drugs than ever before, more therapies than ever before. But in some ways, there are more algorithms than ever before. There's more pathways than ever before. There's more crutches than ever before. Um, and sometimes medicine does displace rather than add on. Like sometimes a new therapy displaces the older one. Rarely, like a new therapy is so good, it displaces many older ones that required more sort of careful monitoring. Medicine's safety windows get better. And so there's less sort of, you know, drug talks. And, you know, for instance, you're not checking DIG levels on your uh, heart failure patients like you once did. Uh, you're not checking any levels on your Coumadin patients like you want. You know, there's less level checking. Some of that is necessary. So I guess, I don't know. I think it's, a. I mean, you know, maybe you're right. Uh, but maybe it's, a, it's an interesting question if like the job of being a doctor is more cognitively taxed. I mean, I certainly think the volumes have gone up. The turnover has gone up. Um, the sort of the business side is more efficient, but I wonder, I don't know. What do you think, Adam? You've been doing it for so long, as he said, you know, 40, 50 years, uh, as an attending, uh, <laughs> what do you yeah. think? Is it more taxing? Yeah, I, I, that's a great question. And it's something sort of like you, I, I'm not sure I've thought about how do you measure something like yeah, that? You, you know, um, I, I think the fact is, is that because of everything else that's changed, right? Like, like every person who works in America, right? We have gotten more productive and more efficient over the time that I've been in my career. Um, part of that, again, I kind of like, I sound like I work for Epic is because, because of the <laughs> electronic medical record, which really enables me to have so much information at hand. I can do a better job taking care of patients with that. You know, I use my, con the, my consultants better because of that. Um, and so there is probably a balance of, you know, we know more, we can treat more, we can diagnose more, but on the other hand, it, it really is easier to do a lot of the diagnosis, a lot of the treatment than it used to be. Um, it's interesting. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Yeah. Marty, how about in your field in the cutting business? Well, um, I will tell you that what you're talking about, what we're talking about today is not a theoretical at all in certain 
surgical training. Cardiac surgery, for example, has just been completely fed up with the idea that you do five years of general surgery training where you're, you know, taking out some, you know, the melanoma of the thigh, you know, and then in order to understand how to be a good car cardiac surgeon. And the argument has been, oh, we teach you basic principles of surgery. No, they've been slave labor. Look at their, look at their rotation assignments, right? They're given the less favorable rotation assignment sometimes because they're, you know, they're seen as the people who are not super interested right. in going off. Right. So cardiac surgery decided, screw you guys in general surgery. You can do one year of general surgery and then match into cardiac surgery. We're going to take people after one year. They can do a transitional year or whatever. And then you, you don't have to do five years and then match into cardiac surgery. Vascular surgery is considering going down. Now, interestingly, very few people signed up for the program in vascular. I forget what it was like a uh, four, two initially. And then I think they tried to go lower instead of a five, two or five, one. So, um, there, this is, uh, this, this is, this is a movement is what you're saying. Movement. Yeah, this is it's a movement. Okay. All right. We'll go to the second top, but I just want two closing points. One, um, you know, people were, were saying that, you know, I was wrong. And one proof that that was wrong is if you survey some of the people who did this extra year, they really like it. I was like, well, okay. I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, people tend to like what they committed. Okay. Okay. That doesn't really prove. I mean, I mean, as a scientist, I was like, what do you, you think that's data? Okay. Fine. Okay. Uh, the second thing they said is, and look at you, you took an extra year to do an MPH. And I was really deeply offended because I didn't take an extra year. I did it while I was, you know, I had to be there anyway. And if I had taken an extra year, I wouldn't have done it. And, I, and so I was offended that anyone would dare think I took an extra year to do it. Okay. Next topic. All right. So, you know, there are many medical decisions that I think there's strong evidence and it's pretty clear and 99 out of hundred doctors would do something. There's some medical decisions that just don't have that much evidence. There's no randomized evidence. There's barely any uh, phase two studies. And uh, recently I was in a situation where I was consulting on some patient and uh, working with the, the fellow and um, basically the options were mild, medium, or hot. And uh, that was the levels of treatment. We could go with the hot stuff, but it has a lot of side effects. We could go with the medium stuff, we go with the mild stuff. And you know, I had seen the person, I looked through the person's chart, I met him, I laid hands on the person, um, you know, like I know this person. And at the end of the day, I have to be honest, like how do you decide mild, medium, or hot? It is 100% gut. I mean, there is no data. No one has any data here. There's not even experience because the entity is like relatively infrequent so that in your year, maybe you'll see it four or five times. Like you can't even say that my, like, it's just anecdote. I mean, it's like, it's an unreliable sort of personal experience. And so I laid my hands on this person. I looked at them, I looked at the chart. I'd seen them with my own two eyes and I felt like, you know, let's go with the medium, you know? And then the, you know, the fellow said, let's go with the medium. And of course, of course, the nature of the modern world they ran it by the expert at some, you know, top tier center, the expert who didn't see the person, uh, who only sort of heard about the person in an email. And the expert was like, oh, you definitely want to go with the hot sauce. You want to go with the hot stuff. You know, of course, that's what the expert thinks. And in my mind, and uh, so I'll leave out the politics of how these decisions get made. But in my mind, what irritates me about this whole thing is why don't we just have the humility to agree that nobody has any data to support medium versus hot. It's like going to a new restaurant and sometimes what they call medium, I'll call hot or I'll, you know, like we don't, first of all, we don't even know what the scale is, right? You know, okay. Um, and you know, the, the person probably who's best to make the decision is the person who's there. I mean, what are we talking about? 
ivory tower doctor who runs trials and has a lab that pipettes who doesn't see the patient, they shouldn't be making the decision. It's got to be the person who's got skin in the game. Like, I'm going to have to take care of the complications. Okay. And then it made me think even broader. The broader thesis is, I'm so, I mean, I'll say politely, or in, I'll say it impolitely. This expert, this expert stuff is all bullshit. I mean, experts, like, yeah, very rarely do they know something I don't know. Most of the time, they're just more comfortable bullshitting. I mean, they have no data. They're just making things up. Okay, that's my hard, th harsher thesis. Um, Adam? Then we go to Marty. Yeah, this is about I, expertise. Yeah, I think there, I, I think there are two issues here. Um, you know, one of them is something that I deal with all the time as a generalist, um, and I, I would say about half of my conversations, precepting residents clinics are about this. Is you know, when do you refer to a specialist, right? And for me, it's is there more known that I don't know that that person can add to it, right? And and very often, you know, if a resident is saying, oh, we need to refer this person to nephrology because they've got CKD3, you know, my reaction is, look, they don't know anything that we don't know about managing this. And if you want to refer them to kind of get that work to somebody else, that's fine. Um, but we don't have a question to ask, right? And I think that gets a little bit to what you're saying is that, look, nobody knows how to manage this better than you do. Um, and when you're, at a, when, when you're in one of those kind of evidence-free zones, right, where you're like, this is just a hard decision because we can't really counsel people well on the you know, risk of harms and likelihood of benefits because we don't have that information, then that comes to you, know, you sitting down with the patient, you're talking about risks and benefits, you're talking about your decision, you, know, you guide them, you get their opinion, and kind of that should be it, right? There's no role for consultation in that point. And you know, things may work out well, they might not work out well, but that's the way medicine is practiced, right? And it takes some guts to do that. It takes some guts, yeah, and yeah, we have to have guts because you're the you're not. okay, Marty. Well, I'm I'm just <clears throat> deeply offended. How dare you talk about Dr. Fauci like that? <laughs> uh, we're talking about clinical doctors. Is he a clinical doctor? It's been a while, maybe. Oh, okay. <clears throat> no, I think um, I, 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 here's what here's my experience with it. <laughs> I think I, I I believe you you can learn something from everybody, and so. Even if I disagree or have a different point of view, or they come, they come at something from a totally different angle. Um, I, I like input, but the th problem is what I've seen in some these multidisciplinary cancer conferences. Somebody will present, you know, we got a 84-year-old woman with pancreatic cancer, and here's the lesion, and then we start saying, oh, you can resect the vein and do this and reconstruct here, and then you, we may, sort of make a verdict, right? Like this is what we recommend. What if she? What if she didn't want to have all that done? What right. if she is frail? What if she has a very low life expectancy separate from the cancer? That in that case, that's bad guidance. And when we sort of detach from the patient, don't have that input from the person who saw the patient, they should start off saying, "Here's a frail woman who is not that excited to be here and generally doesn't want anything done." but is open or her daughter urged her to come in here. That's the how you frame a case, right? Not just put up a scan and, oh, we can cut it out here or we can radiate it or beam it or poison it. You know, th that I think is missing from a lot of these clinical dialogues, especially you go to conferences. 
and they put up image after scan after scan, patient after patient. I think it's I think there's value in learning from hearing different approaches, but there's just assumptions that the patient is on board. You know, I, at one point I took time. I had a complication with a a patient after pancreatic surgery, and I realized, you know, I want everyone to know this is a possibility, and <clears throat> doesn't matter who's doing the surgery, anybody can have this complication. So I went through a lot of detail explaining this is a possibility and that's a possibility. And remember, because this is pancreatic cancer at this stage, there is a four out of five chance that this thing will come back in a few years. And when I presented the whole thing to her, I kind of realized like, I wouldn't have it done if I were her in this particular situation. Right. And I remember she said, you know what, really like there's a, only an 18% chance I would make it to five years. I said, yeah. And you go through this big procedure and, you know, uh, she was frail and she said, I'm okay. Thanks. No, thank you. And I realized, Hey, if I go through this formal and consent informed consent process properly, I'm going to have like 10% less patients to operate on in my practice. And you realize we're disincentivized to do it, but it's important that we do. So well put. And I think when I was saying, like, I laid my hands on this person, part of that also means what you're saying, which is like, I talk to this person and like, I like get a sense of like, you know, how hard does he want to push and how old is he and how frail is he? And does he want to try the hot sauce without knowing that the hot sauce is really better than the medium sauce? Um, so I also, that's part of why I was a little you're bit irritated. About- when you talk about hot sauce media, you're talking about different levels Strengths of toxicity of, chemo- of yes. different chemotherapy. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Is this part of the jargon of what you guys talk about? No, I'm just using it for the purpose of this okay. dialogue. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's just like different strengths of chemotherapy, more toxic versus less toxic, but potentially better, but unproven that it's better. And then like, of course, in retro, and then afterwards, somebody was like, oh, here's here's the paper that supports the, the hot sauce, the stronger stuff. And um, it's like a retrospective study comparing people who received the stronger stuff versus people who didn't showing that they did better. And I was like, yeah, but you do see the potential biases that like a good doctor wouldn't be giving this to a frailer person. So it's kind of confounded. You do know that. And so I'm like, at some point I'm like, even the data is like useless. I'm like, this is a useless data. What are you showing me? You should know this is useless. Okay, Adam, you want to say something? Then I just came up with the, the, you know, hot sauce metaphor, and he's actually going to trademark it before he releases this video. So he can charge when other people use it. But it would make it more accessible. Yeah, there's three different <laughs> chemotherapy multi-drug combos with different levels of cytopenias and other toxicity. Uh, but so, I mean, that's often the case. I like I the think. hot sauce. Yeah, it's a hot. It's a, it's a hot sauce. Yeah. And this is a guy who's saying he doesn't like hot sauce. That's what I'm telling you. He's telling me he's had a bad experience with hot sauce. His medical chart tells me that, and he's saying like I'm okay with medium. It's still pretty good, you know. And you don't really know the hottest, better flavor. It's amazing. Adam, are you going to say something? Yeah, this is actually, I I mean, I hate to link anything to COVID, but I have to say like COVID has taught me a lot about this when I thought think about evidence-based medicine. And what it's really clarified for me is that, you know, when we have data, right, it is so easy to counsel patients, right? Because you can really lay out, look, this is what's best. This is what's not best. This is why, right? The problem is when we don't have data, 
And it's this, you know, our counseling gets so difficult for people. It's difficult in the room. And it's also sort of like in the atmosphere, right? This is where we argue about things when we don't have data because we just don't know. Um, and in a, in a way, it's easier when you're with a patient than when you're on Twitter, because when you're with a patient, you can say, look, this is our shared knowledge. You know, what are your values? What do you want to do? Um, on Twitter, it's just a whole bunch of people who really don't know anything, right? Because we just don't <laughs> yeah. have the information. Yeah. Arguing with people very much because of their anxieties and their values and stuff, which are fine, but you can't come to a consensus like that. Twitter is just the place where people who don't read books argue with people who write them. That's what I always like to say. Marty, <laughs> thoughts on this? <laughs> well, um, it's amazing how many people come in and it, there's no discussion about the options, right? It's mm -hmm. like, yeah, and their their expectations are set, right? So it could be some doctor is sending the patient to me saying this surgeon can take this out. So they come to me so hopeful, you know. Now forget about the prognosis being extremely poor. It's just hey, this guy can take it out, and so it's easy for me to say, hey, yeah, we can take this out. We high five. We schedule the case. We do it. <laughs> Never at any point is there a discussion of an extremely high recurrence rate or the mean, you know, the what's the cure rate? That's what people want to know when you say, oh, you know, there's a um, survival benefit or there's a, you know, um, uh, on average, 38% um, of patients will have an improved survival. They want to know what the cure rate is, right? If you're the patient, you want to know what the cure rate is. At least that's what they're asking. It's not like right. the other- No, it's saying have. like, I'm going to, you're talking about a Whipple, I feel like. And it's like, if I'm going to go through a Whipple, I want to know the curative fraction. Um, and you know, they pushed on the Whipple a lot. Now they, they give neoadjuvant chemo RT and then try to take you to Whipple. I'm like, this is all unproven. Like, where's your randomized data that you're improving curative fractions rather than just doing more surgery on somebody who's already incurable. They don't want to do those kinds of studies though. What are you going to say, Adam? I want to bring it back to the COVID. Point. I was going to make a snide comment. That oh, of course, <laughs> go on. I was just going to make a snide com comment that Marty bought his ticket when he decided to be a menial laborer, that we just refer people to him to say, hey, take this out. Do the job. <laughs> <laughs> Every now and then I'll get the question, oh, this person needs this surgery. How do I set the patient up for surgery? Do I just schedule the operating <laughs> <in> date? <laughs> no, we, we actually see people. It's not a factory assembly line. We'll see them and evaluate them and, and do an informed consent. I'll take two Whipples, please, Marty. Okay, so, um, you know, to Adam's point about the lack of data, I guess part of, I, I do absolutely agree with you. When there's data, it's clear. When you can make a decision, you know, calculator and make that figure with all the people and show the pros and cons of the different strategies. I mean, that's really nice shared decision-making. When it's a data-free zone, a lot of it is how you put things. A lot of it is, you know, um, how you, your read of the person. But I do think it's like the individual is the, is the best way to do that. With COVID, one of the things that irritates me about it is, you know, somebody was like, um, I'll, pick, I'll put the issue. The issue was like, two-year-old to four-year-old cloth masking, okay? And obviously I've been a vocal critic of that. Then every once in a while, someone's like, oh, what do you know? You're not a pediatric ID doctor. I was like, well, they don't know shit about this issue too. What are you talking about? They never ran any studies. The WHO says against it. And if I really need to go to school for all those years to have an opinion on masking a toddler, that doesn't speak so well of my cognitive abilities that like I would, you know, like you have to go 20 years of school to know it doesn't work. You just need eyes and ears. Um, so, and similarly, the New York Times, they always do their survey of experts. These are the same people who said they wouldn't open an envelope 
for four days in the beginning of the pandemic, you know, the say, I don't want to know what they think. I want to know what, like, I want to know what the, the guy in the, you know, the plumber thinks. I mean, I have, a, I'd rather do a survey of just random people uh, than these kinds of things. And I guess it has to do with expertise. I mean, what does it mean to be an expert if there is nothing that you're hanging your hat on other than N of eight? I mean, I don't know. Are you referring, is the eight example come from the eight mice that the FDA- <laughs> Yeah, for the antibodies, yeah. The bivalent vaccine. <laughs> Pfizer bivalent, yeah. Is you can learn a lot from a mouse. So I just want to push back on that a little bit. You can learn a lot about COVID vaccine effectiveness from a mouse, from eight do, mice. They get, do they get myocarditis? Um, I, don't, I don't think they live to tell the tale if they do. I think, I think the longest surviving rat is like four years. That's just a little fact there. It's interesting. So, <clears throat> all right, last topic. What was the last topic? Marty's got to go. You got to go, Marty? Yeah, I got to go, but this is getting juicy here. And you're going to talk about COVID, so I'm going to stay on for five more minutes. Okay, you're going to cut it close. But what, where do we dive in on COVID? I mean, I think the most recent thing that got me was, okay, let's, let's talk about it. We got to put it out there. I mean, this long COVID research, I mean, I don't know what to say. Um, you know, there recently was Eric Topol. He's back, of course, he's back. The, the crown prince of accurate analysis and, and, uh, uh, and, uh, and critical thinking. He's got, there's a, there's a JAMA Health Forum paper. The JAMA Health Forum paper has like a huge electronic data set. And what they do is they define you as somebody who had a post-COVID condition, PCC, if you had one of like, you know, a laundry list of ICD-10 codes placed in the chart, five to 10 weeks after the EHR documented a PCR COVID-19. All right, let me put it another way. So they're taking this big data set. Everyone is getting COVID. Some people are coming to the hospital or their doctor to be tested for COVID. That's not everybody. Most people who get COVID don't go to the doctor. I didn't go to the doctor. You know, you get tested at home. That doesn't count. If you come to the doctor, get tested for COVID, you get put in the COVID data set you get on the COVID arm. And then if five to 10, 12 weeks later in those window, you had one of these many diagnostic codes added to your chart, you get called a post COVID condition, PCC. And they compare these PCC people to healthy people who are not healthy, covariate matched people who didn't get COVID. Okay, they're, they're covariate matched. And then they follow them for a year and they ask how many of them died, how many of them had MI, how many of them had heart failure, how many got COPD. And the answer is more people in that PCC cohort get COPD than in the cohort of people who didn't have a documented COVID who are covariate matched. Okay. Now, when I see a study like this, my obvious you know, thought is that all things being equal, somebody with underlying COPD who gets COVID is more likely to seek medical testing and medical care for the COVID because they're getting hit really hard. And so if you follow them out in the future, I should not be surprised that they have more COPD diagnoses because they probably, that COPD is what made them see the doctor in the first place for their COVID diagnosis. And we all know that the propensity score method doesn't match very well in EHR data sets when you have so many variables you're not matching on. And okay, so the bottom line I think is we've got this industry of people who want you to think that COVID-19 is this new respiratory virus that will liquidate your organs and liquidate your brain. It's gonna be long-term debilitating effects, unlike any of the other coronaviruses. This is very unique. And to bolster that argument, they do research that is just so bad. I'm like, how is this even published? It's like, okay, Adam, 
but then I, what, what do we do? Because listen, yes. you know, we are bad at studying things like this, right? We know this forever, that we're bad at studying these sort of, um, you know, multi-organ systems that cause mostly subjective problems, right? And, you know, long COVID exists, right? You can't deny that. There are people who are worse after having COVID than they were before they had COVID. Now, I don't... <clears throat> really think that that's more common than people who are worse after they've had flu or mycoplasma or chemotherapy or anything, okay? But like, that's real. I agree that this research, most of it is garbage. Um, I worry that what's happening is these are just people trying to grab a pot of money, right, for further research and treatment. I, I'm, I'm, I'm at a loss of like, what do we do better? You know, we, we can't sort of ban, okay, we're not gonna study long COVID anymore, right? Because there are people suffering from it. I mean, I have people in my clinic who are like, I, I used to talk to them once every two years and now I talk to them every month because like they are different and they are suffering. And these are physicians and people who, you know, I would never have expected this from. Um, so I don't know. Okay. I got, okay. And I, and I, and I share this and I, and I, I'll give you a couple of interesting, a couple points right off the bat. One, there's no doubt about it. Anyone who says they're suffering is suffering because that's what suffering means. It's to feel suffering. I mean, that's nothing more. I, if you feel terrible, you're suffering. And, and I think we have to give that full importance because we need to do something about it. Okay. Now long COVID, I think uh, a few data points. The first thing I'd say is like, of course, if somebody gets on the vent, hospitalized on O2, it's going to be a long path to recovery, whether you have COVID or influenza and, you know, don't expect to feel good in six weeks. It might take six months or even a year, you know, if you've been hospitalized, if you've been on the vent, you know, don't expect to regain your muscle mass for maybe, you know, maybe, maybe never, but, you know, two years, if you're lucky, maybe, you know, and so, okay, that's one phenotype. But long COVID is unique because they say you could have mild or asymptomatic or, you know, regular cold like COVID, and then you could have this long-term stuff. The data points I point to are one, that NIH study, which was like 180 people who had 65% had the post-COVID symptoms. Go on. You know what I'm talking about? Annals of internal medicine. I, I, yeah, but I got I, I to gotta interrupt you because yes. this is where I think we, you know, and obviously, look, you, you and I are as committed to, yes. you know, data and publishable <clears throat> data as possible. But I think we're, what we're dealing with is we're dealing with a, a really common infection, right? Which yes. is going to remain really common, just like every other upper respiratory tract infection that happens, right? And some people are going to have a weird idiosyncratic bad outcome. And I'm not just talking about like, oh, this has made my anxiety worse, right? I mean, these are people and they're weird things, but they're things which which as we go further, we say, look, we see this, you know, we see people with worsening tinnitus. We see people with orthostatic hypotension, like everybody you talk to who's kind of in the field, like this, this is what it is, right? Um, and I'm not optimistic that we're gonna figure out a way to treat this well, because I don't think it's any different from, you know, what we were seeing 10 years ago in people with difficult to treat subjective symptoms of multiple organs, right? That's half of what I do as an internist. Right, right. Um, 
And so I got we got to figure out a way of like turning down the temperature a little bit. So a people aren't so worried about long COVID that it's important. Okay, that was one of my first points. Yes, go on to enjoy life. And that we're going to put an amount of money into the research, which is sort of correlates with the degree of suffering that this is truly causing. And I think what your argument is, is that, you know, a lot of people are trying to overstate the degree of suffering, you know, how prevalent long COVID is. Um, and that can be a big problem. It can, I mean, you know, Absolutely. I agree. I agree with all that. The point I was going to make is there's no biochemical abnormality that we can yet detect. And that's kind of an important yeah. thing for pathology. But I guess I'd say one, there should be randomized studies, like randomize them to venlafaxine or not, or, 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 you know, whatever you want, but randomize people who are suffering to an intervention or not. And if they do better, it doesn't matter how it works. If the venlafaxine works or the effects are works or, um, you know, the uh, flu, uh, Prozac works or whatever, that's one the whole genre of work. The second thing is, you know, we see the Havana syndrome. Havana syndrome was non-existent 10 years, 20 years ago. And then you remember this, this is the, the people at the U.S. Embassy in Havana, Cuba. Right, right, right. Okay. And- um, Right. But we- And, we, we, and now there's- That's new totally ed- different. Because we had a long history with like sick buildings and things like that, yeah. which we know are not a thing, right? But um, I, isn't it, it's, I, it's I very think, similar. It's very similar, isn't it? Because because the, it once the idea think, came I on, it spread an intelligent, like, it's not just Havana. Many people who've been deployed in State Department sites have reported these symptoms. The talking about the symptoms yields more people reporting this. I guess that's the part of it. Long COVID. This was created by Ed Yong. I mean, he wrote the seminal article, put it in the Atlantic. He got it from Facebook reports. The, the media coverage has always exceeded the, the scientific basis. And they have a reason for it because, Adam, it's like so many things. It's the thing that helps their preconceived policy notion. Right now, if you want me to wear a mask, you can't justify it unless there is long COVID. And unless long COVID is biological. Go on. I get all this. And I understand why, (laughs) you know, you you get your dander up about this, right? Um, And I do think that, you know, for every hundred people that Ed Young would say, you know, has long COVID, you know, there are three people, right? Um, but having read all the same literature as you and knowing, yeah, there aren't biochemical markers and stuff and so on and so forth, you know, and it's going to sound like, but I know, but I know, you know, the group of symptoms, right? Which which I see reproducible, you know, in people, like there's something there. And I think you're right. We have to figure out how to treat that. And it's not just from COVID, it's from everything, right? It's this whole group of patients who forever, we've changed the name a thousand times from, you know, neurasthenia to chronic fatigue syndrome to, to you know, Epstein-Barr virus right, to right. long COVID, right. um, you know, which I really do think are sort of similar, probably post-infectious stuff that we don't have a good handle on. And I kind of hope that, well, maybe because a lot more people are suffering with this now, because a lot of people had COVID all of a sudden, you know, that maybe we make some progress. Um, but we are far from that because you're right. You know, we've got such a like, umbrella way of diagnosing people that we're probably catching 10 times as many people who actually have something related to the disease as truly do. I mean, it's, a, it's very, I mean, it's very interesting. And I like this discussion. I mean, I guess the, the things we totally are in alignment on are people are suffering. You got to do something about it. You got to like, think of these strategies. 
I guess the questions I have are, where is long COVID in India? Where is long COVID in the Indian slums in Mumbai? I don't hear any long COVID. I don't I know. Every, all uh, of India has been infected. There's no long COVID. There's no long COVID so, in Indonesia in like resource poor settings where people are struggling. Is long COVID to some yeah. degree a degree, disease so, of affluence? A disease of, yeah. No, so clearly, clearly where you disagree, and I'm just going to say it. You don't believe it exists at all. Okay? I believe it exists, um, but it's. Uh, I just don't see a biological basis no, no, no. for it. Yes, there's right, no biological, right. and, but it's, and, it exists like uh, you know, like pots exist. It does exist. Yeah. Yeah, but so deep inside, you're like, you know, everybody, everybody, everybody who has long COVID, okay, just feels bad, and they've got some other problem, okay. And we're not seeing it in, you know, a slum in Mumbai because, you know, those people don't have time to think about how they're feeling because they're just trying to live, right? Um, I disagree with you about that. Like, I think there is clearly, 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 you know, an in, 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 in illness that starts after COVID, right? That people have just because I see it. Um, and, and I don't think it's dissimilar to what people have had for the last 25 years after other things. And we probably agree to some extent on why don't we see it in all these less resource places? It's because there's like no way for those people to report it. They've got too many other things on their plate to care about, you know, a little bit of tinnitus or a little bit of dizziness. They're not on Twitter complaining about it, right? But as they, and say, they didn't read Ed Young's article. They didn't read Ed Young's but that article. Doesn't, yeah. that, that doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. No, right? no, no. But and I do think it, it has therapeutic implications. Problems. Okay, here's the therapeutic implication. In the current mode of thinking, if you have long COVID, you may sign someone's disability form so they don't go to work. You may advise them to use a gravity chair or, you know, do this. I mean, these are what things are people doing, you know, or, or seeking these like, you know, I don't know, plasma. They're doing all sorts of crazy things. Maybe the answer is the opposite. Maybe we should be advising them to go back to work to put your head, you know, to go back in person and do stuff, not to take more and more time to dwell on it. Maybe the way to improve the symptoms is the Mumbai treatment, which is that you got, you know, I mean, you have day-to-day -day issues to deal with. And, you know, like many things in life, I, I think we are in a moment in culture where if something bad happens to you or you're depressed or whatever, or you're something, you know, you know, it's take a week off work and think of, sometimes it's the last thing you should be doing after you take a week off or it's get back to work get back to her, put your nose down and, and don't think about it. That's life. Um, and you know, with time you'll feel better. Am I, am I wrong? Well, so I would say that, you know, listen to yourself, right? So if you believe that these are the things we should do trials on. Yes, we should. Right? That's what I'm saying. That's um, what I'm saying. We should do trials on. Yes, of course. Right. And so I would say, look, you know, if you want to do the suck it up versus be cared for trial for long COVID, terrific, you know? Um, and I'd like you to say, if we're gonna do trials, not just give me a list of antidepressants you wanna try, right? Um, but let's also try some other things for this, okay? Um, I guess, to be honest- the, the To be honest I'm, with you, yeah, go on. I don't think we have a treatment for this yes. because I think that if we had a treatment, we would have figured it out in the last 25 years for all the people suffering from a whole bunch of other kind of syndromic complaints that we haven't been able to explain. Um, and so I'm a little bit pessimistic that we're going to come up with anything because it's going to take some serious breakthrough to figure out what's, what's actually causing this problem in people.
I think that's why like with, when you don't find a biochemical pathway that's altered, that's why it's tricky. Um, because yeah. then what do you interdict on? I mean, the reason I reach for SSRIs True. is, right, you know, I don't know what to interdict on. Absolutely. And, and it's right. interesting to me that so the, I think it, there's a bi- it, it affects every organ system, but not a single of the 200 biochemical pathways. Right. We've looked. Just very interesting. How's it doing that? How's it doing that? Right. I don't, and I, I think there probably is a biochemical pathway that we haven't recognized. And that's why we can't treat it. You know? And that's why you memorize um, the credit. That's why we should memorize more cycles. <laughs> no, way to bring it around. All right. This has been a good discussion. Um, Marty missed out on all this. I think Marty might have been on my side on this one, but um, you know, it is an interesting That's thing. That's why I waited till the end to argue. I, know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's interesting. I mean, I, think I, I, was, guess... I was better off one against mano yeah. a mano rather than two on one. <laughs> I think you were. I mean, it's it, 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 like, I guess it's hard to, I don't know. It's hard to juggle all these balls in the air because we're both, you know, anybody suffering, you got to take that seriously. You got to do something about it. So I, I want to, my, you know, my heart does go out to anyone who's suffering from anything. Uh, then the question is though, but I think maybe the one part, maybe we do agree on is that the more they, people like Topol keep pushing this in the media, like that's not help. That's not good for people's mental health to keep like, you know, living in fear of it. Yeah. We'll agree on that. And then how do you treat that, it? That I, that I do agree with. Right. Um, I, I, I sort of yeah. don't want to, and this probably disses both you, me and Topol, yeah. to be honest with you. I don't want to hear from anybody who's not actually an experienced internist who is working with people clinically um, who are suffering after COVID. Because those are the people who actually sort of understand the clinical pathway. And anybody who's doing a good job or a bad job looking at bad studies, I don't get it. Okay, but to to your Um, point, I would tell you, and I know somebody who goes to that because we have a long COVID clinic, the provider burnout sure. is through the is through the roof. The providers have a lot of burnout through the roof, through the roof, through, through the, the roof. roof. Because um, it's it's not everybody. It's, yeah, it's not it's not nice to be a right. doctor with nothing to help anybody with. Absolutely, yeah. and I'm I'm with you. Everybody I've talked to has been like, after four hours of clinic, I either need to go for a walk if it's in the middle of the day, or I need to go home and have a drink if it's the end of the day. Um, and it's because we don't know what we're doing, and we have trouble taking care of these people. I think it's also pointing at the biochemical pathway. Okay, Dr. Adam Sifu, it's <laughs> been it's been a pleasure. Great discussion. Some agreement, some disagreement. I hope people enjoy this Oof. sensible medicine. Maybe I'll put this out on the video. Uh, direct your hate mail to what's your email address? <laughs> no, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> it's everywhere. It's easy everywhere. to find. <laughs> well, don't don't send it my way because I, you know, I'm not going to read your comments anyway because I need to use my own. You know, I got to say these comments. By the way, you know, lose the beard, keep the beard. Hair is too long. Get a hair. I mean, what are you doing, people? I don't want to. I don't care. This is not my appearance show, okay? And I don't care about your comments. I mean, and you also disagree with each other, by the way. Get your story straight before you send me advice. All right. Talk soon. Thank you. I think you look quite good. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to keep that in there. Welcome back to the channel. I want to talk about some correspondence that's out now in the New England Journal of Medicine. This is by Peter Marks and Bob Califf. That's the commissioner of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, and the person who's now in charge of vaccine products, now that we've had the resignation of the good doctors Gruber and Krauss. 
They have a rebuttal to Dr. Paul Offit, who wrote an op-ed in the New England Journal of Medicine arguing that their bivalent booster policy, which they're pushing for young people, didn't make a lot of sense. He said you should reserve it for old people, for immunocompromised people. You shouldn't be pushing it on young people who've already had COVID. You got no good data for that. That was the gist of Paul Offit's argument. And in fact, there's a lot of reasons why you're not going to get a lot of juice from that squeeze. And he didn't go on to say this, but and also the harms are non-trivial. I'm saying that as well. Well, in response to that, a rebuttal letter has been written by these two gentlemen. That rebuttal letter is worth considering line by line, and uh, you'll be the judge of it. I think it's pretty terrible, but you'll be the judge of it. Okay, here we go. To the editor. Citing preliminary immunogenicity results and one study on effectiveness, Offit argues in his perspective article that bivalent boosters against SARS-CoV-2 Omicron subvariants BA4 and 5, as well as the ancestral strain, should not be deployed throughout the entire population. That's because Paul Off's right. Paul's right, yeah. Key available evidence that was omitted by Offit suggests otherwise. Oh, he omitted evidence. Let's, let's hear about it, shall we? Oh, what did he omit? First sentence. Of the next paragraph, David Gardner and colleagues, as well as others, found that bivalent boosters had better immunogenicity against emerging variants, including, including BQ1.1 and XBB. That's the Kraken, isn't it? The Kraken they talk about? Then did the monovalent booster reference too. Okay, so some people found the antibody titers were a smidge higher. The problem with this argument is that that smidge is not big enough to be clinically meaningful. And also, nobody knows what it means. If you boost somebody in perpetuity, the more you boost them, the more the antibodies will go up. That's because the body is smart. It doesn't make antibodies against antigen it hasn't seen in a while all the time. And if it did make antibodies against everything you have immunity to, your blood would be like molasses. But the body knows not to make antibodies all the time. This is pretty stupid because this is a surrogate endpoint that has no validation in this setting that they're hanging their hat on. They shouldn't even say it. I think it's disgraceful to say. Next sentence coronavirus disease has taken tremendous toll on the entire population, resulted in more than 7,500 hospitalizations and 1,100 deaths in the United States among persons 18 to 49 between September and December 2022 alone, according to CDC. Well, those statistics are erroneous. That's number one. You have difficulty separating hospitalization with incidental COVID-19 because you're swabbing everyone relentlessly at the door from hospitalization due to COVID-19. That's one. Two, it's a statistic from the past. But you're arguing that people, the 84% of Americans who have declined your bivalent booster should go out and get it. So your argument is about the present and the future. So the statistic from the past would be irrelevant if it were true. Unfortunately, it's probably inflated and overblown. The CDC has difficulty counting numbers properly. We're going to publish that very soon. It's neither here nor there. It's an emotional argument, I think. Uh, and it doesn't even address the other issues that they're pushing the boosters down to like five-year-olds. So what about that? Okay, let's put that aside. Several studies indicate that the bivalent boosters are clinically effective in reducing the incidences of symptomatic disease, hospitalization, and death across the age spectrum, including among persons 18 to 49 who have been vaccinated previously. Oh, really? Well, number one, the first thing I'm going to say is that it's not very important to prevent any mild symptomatic disease. That's called a cold. And you're going to get a lot of colds if you plan on living for the next few decades. Okay, that's not an important endpoint. What you do want to prevent, if you can, is hospitalization and death, and you want to do so with a favorable risk-benefit profile. I think that's what we'll agree on. The problem is that this statement is ill-supported. The three references that they cite are all from the journal 
MMWR. MMWR is not a good scientific journal. It's a rag that's promoted by the CDC with the worst methods I've ever seen. And it has a duty to promote information that supports the preordained policy conclusions of the CDC. It is a biased journal. It's a biased journal, okay? And they've also published some of the worst studies, studies that not even worth the energy of your hands to tear them to shreds. You don't even want to bother. They're so bad. And I've documented that relentlessly on my website. All these studies are low quality. None of these studies are randomized, prospective randomized studies, which is really the only way to know if a therapeutic intervention actually has a benefit versus the types of people who seek out that intervention. Why did the FDA make the Pfizer original study be randomized? Why did they do that? Why didn't they just let you people who want to take the vaccine take the vaccine? Oh, well, that's because that method is not reliable. And that's what they're doing in this case. They're using an unreliable method, okay? They're saying they can extrapolate from the first study, but you can't do that in medicine. You don't. You haven't built enough of a case of, of, of corroborative evidence that those extrapolations are always sound. In fact, you have no sort of meta-regression estimates that those extrapolations will be sound. Okay, I'll put that aside. It's a bit technical. All of these retrospective studies have biases. The bias is that the 14% of Americans who rushed out to get the bivalent booster, P.S. I don't know too many of them and I'm in the medical business, those people are very different than those who didn't rush out to get it. They may take other precautions, they may be richer, they may have certain socioeconomic factors, they may have other things that prevent them from having hospitalizations and bad outcomes. And I don't know if it was the bivalent booster or that those other advantages that conferred the difference in outcome. One study that they cite is about 65, which is not the subject of the debate. Offit's not arguing that. This is about younger age groups. One is a criminally bad study that compares people who got bivalent boosters to people who had the primary vaccine series who may not have even gotten the first booster. But that's not a fair comparison because they're asking people who've already gotten two doses, a prior booster and may or had the virus itself to get the bivalent booster. So you want to compare the people who were eligible for the bivalent booster and may get it to those who are eligible and choose not to get it. I mean, even if you were to do a retrospective observational study, the way they're doing it is backwards. They're comparing it also at times to unvaccinated. That's a pointless thing. We're not, we're not talking about should you get all of these shots versus none of these shots. We're talking about somebody who's already had several of these shots. Should they get this additional shot? That's the question. Are we on the same page here? This is logic 101, okay? It's not even really a technical matter here. This is what the question is. Should somebody who's already gotten all these shots get one more? Okay, that's the question. Paul Offit concedes to them in his response that, yeah, I do think that these retrospective observational studies show me that there is a transient reduction in symptomatic SARS-CoV-2 acquisition, which of course will go away with time because that's what all the other studies show. But he argues that he's not persuaded that there is a reduction in hospitalization and death. Okay, but I don't even concede the former because I don't know if the symptomatic SARS-CoV-2 reduction would have been there had they done a randomized study. These are retrospective studies that are being done by somebody who already set the policy. Let me make another point here. They are searching for post hoc justifications for their action. They didn't have this data when they made the decision. The only data they had were eight and 11 mice that had antibody titer data. They didn't have good data when they made the decision. Their decision was made on that data. Now they've made the decision. They publicly announced their decision. They're wedded to their decision and they need to generate observational data that supports their decision, which they're going to publish in their journal. 
That's not exactly a recipe for impartial science. Are we living on the same planet? Obviously, that would be a farce. They have a huge political and personal and scientific reputation interest in getting these particular result. And observational data are very malleable. And of course, they achieve the result, but even then, they don't achieve it very robustly because it's very hard, even when you data dredge to show an, oh, an all-cause mortality or a hospitalization reduction in this age group, it's very, very hard, even with all their prestidigitation, it's very hard. All right. Paul Offit says, quote, in his response, the protection against hospitalization that was afforded by violent, bivalent boosters, which was the goal of this vaccine, was limited in the studies that you just cited to me, Peter Marks and Bob Califf, to people over the age of 65 and those with a median age of 76. Okay, so it doesn't apply to this age group. Okay, that's off its rebuttal. I think that's pretty strong. Next, Marks and Califf. They keep digging. They keep digging. You can watch them dig, 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 dig their little hole here. Okay. Given the excellent safety profile of the vaccines, which is similar to that of influenza vaccine among persons six months of age and older, the totality of the available evidence supports the vaccination of all currently eligible persons with updated COVID-19 vaccines as an important public health intervention. Okay. Number one, you're using the auspices of an EUA, the emergency use authorization. I look around and I don't see much of an emergency in 20-year-old men who have already had three doses and already had COVID. I don't see an emergency there. And I think it's dishonest to say there is, and I don't think anyone can genuinely say that it warrants special regulatory pathways. You're abusing an authority that was granted in a kind of emergency that you yourself control when the emergency ends, okay? Very, very problematic stuff. And actually, if somebody wanted to be president and make a lot of money, you can just abuse these authorities and get your company to, you know, get a product approved very quickly under the auspices of EUA. I'm sure somebody, somebody will do that in the near future. I mean, why not abuse these things that are already being abused? Just abuse them a little bit more. That's one. Two, they say this, given the excellent safety profile of the vaccines, which is similar to the influenza vaccine, huh? Is the COVID-19 vaccine's side effect profile similar to the influenza vaccine? Let me think about that. Do medical residents always call in on Jeopardy every year after the influenza vaccine? Do people spend two days in bed after the influenza vaccine? Do some people have 103 degree fevers after the influenza vaccine to the rate with which they're having it here? Do men between the ages of 16 and 24 have a one in 3,200 risk of myocarditis on dose two from the Moderna? a product from the influenza vaccine? Do they have a 1 in 10,000 risk of myocarditis from the booster shot with the influenza annual booster? No, they don't. You have to be bullshitting me. Nobody believes this. Paul, Waleed Jalad from the University of Pittsburgh has a nice tweet where he says, does anyone believe this? And if you're going to go out there, he adds, if you're going to go out there and you're going to say, we need to police misinformation, why are you lying? Why are you lying like this? And why is the New England Journal allowing somebody to claim that the side effect profile of COVID-19 vaccines is the same as influenza? Right now, 80% of America has been vaccinated. I don't know a single person who actually in good faith says the side effect profile is exactly the same as the annual flu shot. It is definitely more reactogenic. It's definitely more immunogenic. If you're older and extremely vulnerable from COVID, that risk of reactogenicity is nothing. I mean, you should take the risk because there could be a net there. I mean, there was a net benefit certainly in the first quarter of 2021, and that was a wise choice. But if you're a 20 year old in 2023 and you've gotten multiple doses and you had COVID and they're coming along and saying, well, it's just like a flu shot in terms of side effects, that's clearly bullshit. I mean, how can they say that? It's just a frank lie. And I don't know why they even published that. It's problematic. I mean, they are lying and they're lying 
they're holding a role, two roles, okay? They want to be the regulator, and the job of the regulator is to not be a political appointee and not call, uh, and to call balls and strikes. The regulator has to be impartial. The regulator can't, you know, be a partisan. The regulator has to be somebody who's like, my job is to look at science and say, you know, do the potential upside and known upside outweigh the potential downside and known downside. That's a regulator. But they also are working hand in hand with the White House, which is a political body. And the political body has already made political choices. They've decided that it's politically right to offer the bivalent boosters. It's politically necessary to make sure they're available to very young kids. Is it medically necessary or scientifically necessary? I don't think many people would agree with them, and certainly not if people have had COVID-19. They're confusing science for politics, and that's why they're derelict. They're doing a derelict job. They're destroying the reputation. When you write in the New England Journal of Medicine, the side effect profile is the same. You're destroying, destroying the reputation of the agency because you're lying to people, and they know you're lying. I mean, I think everybody will know that that is a lie. You don't even have to say much. Everybody knows you're lying when you say there's good evidence a two-year-old should mask, and then you look and you see they're chewing on the math. They know there could not possibly be good evidence. And then they see them napping and they all take it off. I mean, what are you to think? If you, if you treat American citizens as if they're idiots, then you ask, why, how, how come you don't trust me? Well, you treated me like an idiot and you kept lying to me, okay? I mean, it's simple. That's why. And then, well, what about, I think it was Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan did it. Oh, yeah, of course. Joe Rogan did it. No, you did it, Bob Califf. You did it, Peter Marks. You lost the trust because you are habitually wrong. You didn't use your powers for good. Your power was make Pfizer do a randomized trial of human beings and measure severe disease and have an interaction coefficient that can look by age and look by comorbidities and actually see that it works in and whom it works and see in whom it may not work. That's your power. That's the power of the government to compel the company to generate relevant data. You abandon that power. I don't know why you would abandon the power. It really only benefits the company and maybe your political overlords who may be wanting to benefit the company. But I'll be very curious where you go to work in the next few years. Okay, closing. Bob Califf likes to say misinformation is the leading cause of death. And that's just a great thing for him to say because... That statement is pulled directly out of his ass. I mean, he really has no data that that is true. He's making up uh, information to make a point about podcasters and other things that he may dislike, which is based on nothing, which is ironically a form of misinformation. So he's actually committing misinformation when he tells you that misinformation is leading cause of death. If I were a reporter, I'm not a reporter, but if I were a reporter, I might ask somebody, hey, you keep saying this, What's the reference for this bizarre claim? And when they say there's no data that supports it, I pulled it out of my ass, you might write a news story that the FDA commissioner is committing a great irony. But of course, reporters only are critical when the opposing political party is in power. See, I'm actually on the left, but I know that that's pretty stupid. You have to hold power to, a, you have to, hold a power to account no matter who's in power. This is really ridiculous. The same is true here. This whole letter by Bob Califf and Peter Marks is FDA propaganda. They cite antibody titer levels, which is the surrogate endpoint that doesn't correlate with how people feel or function. It's actually useless. Put them in the trash. One study showed this, one study showed that. Paul Offit's point was the delta, the change in antibody titer is unlikely to afford a meaningful reduction in severe disease because it's smaller than the change between the two products of which you've already conceded that there's unlikely to be very much difference in severe disease. So how can you now say that the difference is important, you've already conceded it's not important, you know, he's got them in this sort of catch-22, 
But put that all aside. This is all a surrogate endpoint. It should all be put in the trash can. You don't get to continually deploy medical products in hundreds of millions of people based on shitty surrogate endpoint science that you have not validated. And to validate it, you can read my book on ending my book, Malignant, two chapters on that on how to validate surrogates. They're not even close. Second point, they cite retrospective observational study that is confounded, has residual confounding, has a number of other problems in it, often uh, uh, including the fact that one of the studies doesn't even pertain to the target age group that often is arguing about. It's only 65. Then they cite reductions in symptomatic disease, which is silly because we're all going to get COVID if we haven't had it already. And if we have had it, we're going to get it again. And that's unlikely to be a durable change. If it is a real change, I don't even know if it's a real change because they didn't do any randomization. I know they know randomization is important because they did do that the first time and they do keep doing that for other things. So they are aware of randomization, but for this class of products, they certainly don't want to do it because randomization doesn't bend and flex like a tin spoon. Um, then they have the audacity to claim the safety profile is the same. That's just total bullshit. And, uh, uh, then they have, they have the audacity to say that we actually do think the evidence supports this, which they didn't have that evidence when they made the recommendation and now post hoc, they're desperately looking for something to hang their hat on. It's a lot. It's a lot to take in. The more you know, actually, the more offensive it is, actually. The more you follow regulatory science, the more offensive the current moment is. The more we think about the broader narrative in regulatory science that there has been an ongoing battle for 25 years where we, proponents of evidence-based medicine, have tried to put pressure on companies to generate relevant data for citizens. And that has typically been a policy position of the left to put more pressure on companies so they can't engage in profiteering and scamming the American people and selling snake oil. That's typically been a policy position of the left. And now you see the left diving in head over heels to enrich a for-profit company, deny, fail to conduct randomized controlled trials, cite low quality, unreliable studies that their own project RCT duplicate has failed to validate make bizarre claims about safety that are unproven, have the FDA commissioner lying to the American people that misinformation is leading to cause of death, which itself is misinformation because he has no data to support that claim. This is very bad. It's just hypocrisy. The entire left regulatory policy on this is hypocrisy. Meanwhile, there are commenters on FDA policy who are happy to call them out for Adyahelm, for Exondis, for all the cancer drugs, but they'll be quiet on boosters because they don't want to touch boosters, but boosters is philosophically the same thing. I'll say it once, I'll say it again. If you do not defend a principle, even when it is not in your political interest to do so, you do not have principles. You're an opportunist, I have no respect for you. And that's what they're doing here. They're obliterating the reputation of the FDA. There are going to be, you know, Dan Carpenter wrote a great book, uh, I think it's Reputation and Power, sort of this like 700 page tome on FDA. There are going to be entire books written about what they have done to the US FDA during this period of time. The entire kids vaccine debacle, that ODAC meet, that uh, Verbac meeting, which is the vaccine advisory board meeting that they called and called off in February of last year when they, um, uh, or actually maybe it was a year and a half ago, they called it and called it off when there was a non-statistically significant trend in a non-primary outcome in the very young age group because they were eager to ex- approve the product. This is why Marty, I think, testified in front of Congress that they had already decided they wanted to approve the product. It really didn't matter what the results were. The use of non-inferiority, the use of immunobridging, I mean, these are all extremely 
permissive regulatory tactics that do not generate good evidence for the American public and do enrich the company. And they're going to be judged very poorly in history because I also think it's very clear that further analyses are going to show that this subgroup of men in this age group uh, clearly have been offered doses that were at a net detriment to their health. Um, and that will be very problematic for the FDA. And so if you really care about the reputation of the FDA, you got to call these guys out. Uh, I think Walid is good about it. He's calling balls and strikes here. Uh, I don't fully understand what they're trying to do. They're spending the credibility like monopoly money. They're going to burn it to the ground. The, the aftermath of what they have done will be such deep division on all of these issues. You are unlikely to have a functioning public health for, I think, a quarter century. It's going to be really decimated. There's going to be state-by-state -state variations like you've never seen before. And if there is, in fact, some future threat, there's going to be so much state-by-state -state disagreement, uh, it's going to be stunning. There will be no possibility of a coordinated effort. There needs to be, uh, I think, a commission to investigate the errors in a bipartisan way, to announce the errors. People need to apologize, issue mea culpas on all these issues, schools and masking and, and vaccine policy. Uh, otherwise, I think we're doomed. Okay, bad letter in the New England Journal of Medicine. Those are my thoughts on it. If you like this, you know what to do. I guess uh, like, subscribe, comment, leave a message, send this video to somebody. Uh, subscribe to Vinay Prasad's Observations and Thoughts. Uh, if you prefer cancer drug policy, which I talk a lot about because it's my deep interest, uh, developdrugs.substack.com. And if you want some general medical interest, uh, sensible medicine is good for you. This uh, I might make this available on the plenary session audio feed. Why not? Uh, and then I uh, will be back with more. All right. Until next time.